You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Pastors are a weird bunch of people. Pastors are just weird. Where else, name me one other job, that you can go to school for seven years, you learn two dead languages, you get amassed this like random assortment of skills, all so that you can work one day a week for 35 minutes in that one day a week. So I'm glad you're laughing. That was definitely not an amen moment, so that's good. <laughs> Pastors are just weird. It's a weird thing. Being a pastor, if you're asking me, means attending to things temporal with an eye toward things eternal. (laughs) Inviting others to consider what God might be up to between coffee conversations and text threads. These common places where life happens and scripture is opened and God's name is mentioned. And in those places we discover that the menial is in fact infused with profound meaning. And that all of life is a stage for the spirit. And there are, in fact, no unsacred places. Pastors are weird. Well, this is our fourth of a five-week series uh, called Restored. It's a character study in the life of Paul. And so these last couple weeks, we've looked at these different places that Paul occupied. Paul as a disciple, just like a follower of Jesus. Paul as a missionary. Paul as a church planter. And today, we're talking about Paul as a pastor. I think sometimes we forget that he was a pastor, too. He has a vision for pastoral leadership and a vision of church that I think is as compelling as it is countercultural. But I need to say, actually, before we go any further, um, as a pastor, talking about a pastor is like self-conscious at worst, like self-promoting at like best. It's really kind of weird. And because we're going to learn about Paul this morning and like this giving, selfless, thoughtful, like theologically rich person. And then I'm like, So this is like a terrible thing. Very self-aware in this moment. So you can all stop looking at me. Just pull out your phones and just do this. Now, so um, here's why I want to do this this morning. Why should we take a look at Paul as a pastor? I think there are three reasons, and these are the things I just want to have in our minds as we get into where we're going to go this morning. First off, I think it's good to have a vision of Paul's pastoral ministry, Paul as a pastor, because you need to know what God's word says a pastor should be like. I think that's a good thing, because a lot of times... What churches want pastors to be is not what scripture actually suggests. And so we're going to take a look at that. I think second reason for this morning, though, I think if you, most of you are not pastors, but it's really great to have a vision for what a church is like. And Paul's going to talk about himself this morning, but he's going to do it in a way that says, gosh, isn't it great if we all went after this vision of church? You'll see what I mean. And then third thing, I think it's great to take a look at Paul's pastoral ministry because it's actually a good model for leadership in any kind. Inside and outside of the church, there's a ton of leadership principles and where we're going to be this morning, and I can't wait to get there. So here's where we're going this morning. I want to give you a quick background of Paul's letters as a pastor. And so if you're brand new to reading the Bible, if like you never cracked the spine of this thing, we're going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf this morning and talk about Paul's letters first. 
Then we're going to take a short little slice out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to be there for just a little while. We're going to pull out these principles of pastoral ministry along the way. And then we're going to wrap up with how we can connect back to this theme of restoration. So first things first, Paul's letters make up a majority of the New Testament. And it's worth like asking, well, how should we read these things? Like, what are they doing here? Why is he all over and why is he so important? So I want to give you just four points of introduction and then we'll get to the text. So point number one, we know that Paul wrote at least 13 letters. Okay, so that's a lot. I say at least because he actually wrote more letters than we have in our Bible. When he wrote the letter to the Colossians, just the church, he said, hey, when you guys read this letter in your church, can you pass it over to the church in Laodicea? And then could you make sure that you read the letter that I wrote to them? Now, here's why I bring all that up. You can look in your table of contents in your Bible and you'll see like Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, all that. You will not see Laodiceans. Laodicea was another city. And you won't see the letter that Paul wrote. This is another sermon for another day. But right now, we can confidently say that Paul wrote at least 13 letters. And the ones that we have are confidently the ones that the Lord wants us to have. We'll talk about that more some other time. But for now, 13 is the number I want you to remember in your Bible. Second point of intro for this is all of Paul's letters follow a similar fourfold format. First thing he does in every letter is he has this really kind word of introduction. Greetings and salutations. So next time you answer your phone, don't say hello, just say greetings. They'll think you're so smart. He starts off with this really warm intro. Then the first half of most of Paul's letters is all theology. It's all what God through Christ has done. That's where he starts off. That's really intentional. And then Paul moves into the third part of almost every letter is now in response. He says, so now all of what God has done, now because of this, live like this. So he gives some direction. And then he closes out almost all of his letters with just like a, hey, tell everybody I say hey, kind of like tell your folks I says hi, we'll be over Sunday for barbecue or something. Just like a quick little goodbye. Third thing I need you to know is all these letters have a very distinct feel to them. This is going to feel unbearably brief, but I want to hit the highlights of each letter really quickly in the order they appear in your Bible. Okay? Our creative team has made this helpful little infographic to make sense of what I'm actually about to say. So first one, the big one is Romans. Romans is Paul's doctoral dissertation on the gospel. It's his most legal letter. It's his densest letter. This is like Paul at his best. It's dense. It's heavy. But gosh, is it good. Every word is weighty. After Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, these are intensely practical letters that deal with the church, which is why we have pictures of people up there. All this really intensely stuff like unity and division and gifts and generosity, church matters in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Galatians is Paul's angriest letter, hence the exclamation point, the gospel is being undermined by false teachers. And so Paul writes like a man on fire. Interestingly, this is his only regional letter directed to a churches in a region, not just a specific city. Ephesians is Paul's most condensed letter. If you want to get started with Paul, go to Ephesians. This is like the cliff notes of Paul's theology, triple espresso shot. That's Ephesians. Philippians is Paul's tenderest letter, hence the heart. There's hardly a word of correction or condemnation to the Philippians. I like to think he just like had a soft spot in his heart for the church in Philippi. 
Colossians, Paul's most Christ-centered letter. He talks about Jesus in Colossians more than anywhere else, and that's saying something because what this church needed was gospel clarity. First and second Thessalonians, say that five times fast. Don't. I practiced all week. <clears throat> Took a lot. This is Paul's most vulnerable letters. He's wide open door with the church in Thessalonica. He loves them enough to be vulnerable. The pastoral epistles, this is 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Paul wrote these letters to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. And so this is his most developmental letter. He's like a theological Yoda. So if anybody does a really good Yoda impression, come see me afterward, that'd be awesome. The last letter is Philemon. This is Paul's most focused letter. He wrote to one guy about one issue, one thing. Super focused, super narrow, super short. Now here's why I bring all this up. All 13 of these are distinct. All are unique. They've got their own little flavor. There's 13 of them. And so if you are brand new to reading God's word, here's what you could do. Take the next two weeks, it's like 14 days plus one grace day, and just read one per day. You're not going to get everything, and that's all right. But it'll just give you a little bit of flavor of what's cooking in Paul's kitchen. All right, fourth, last bit of Paul 101, and then we'll get to the text. Paul's letters flow from the heart of a pastor. Paul writes letters because Paul loves churches. These churches are flocks that he helped to lead and gather and sometimes start. And so when he writes letters, he's writing out of continual care and residual responsibility for them. And I think it does us good to remember that. Paul's not some like celebrity pastor type. He's not some traveling evangelist who's like in town for a little bit and then he's gone. He's not like through on a book tour or like trying to build his brand or anything like that. I don't mean this to sound um, like reductionist, but Paul writes letters the same way that modern pastors would send emails or write blog posts. These 13 letters are extensions of his pastoral heart. This is him protecting with his pen, directing from a distance, and shepherding with his words. Now, all four of those points are just context. That's just the frame for where we're going to be this morning. So I want to look at this small section that's nestled in 1 Thessalonians. You can get there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn there, flip there, scroll there. Or if you don't, that's okay. It'll be on the screen behind us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And again, here's how I want us to see this. First, so that you can have a really clear view as to what it's supposed to be like to be a pastor. What does God's Word actually say this is supposed to do? Second thing. View from a church. What could a church be with this vision that Paul shoots out there? And then third thing, just as a leader, however that finds you in life, there's tremendous principles in here. So here's how he starts out. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That word means like an empty pot, like nothing. It was just like smoke and mirrors. But, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Here's principle number one. Paul was bold in the gospel. He was bold in the gospel. His point is, I didn't come just saying stuff. I said what mattered. <laughs> There's a lot of things that pastors and preachers can say. There's only one thing that really matters. And that's the gospel. This reminds me of, um, like for me, one of my first preaching professors in Bible college, a guy named Dwight Perry. He said this, 
How you say what you say doesn't matter if what you're saying isn't worth saying. Isn't that awesome? I'll say it again because I lost myself in there from time to time. He said this to a room full of like would-be pastors. He says, how you're saying what you're saying doesn't matter if what you're saying isn't worth saying. What does he mean by that? Preach the gospel. <laughs> That's what the church is about. This isn't entertainment. This isn't just like, hey, here's my thoughts on something. You don't care about my thoughts on anything. I don't. <laughs> Preach the gospel. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians where he even said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. It's like what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20 where he says, if I say that I won't speak in his name, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. For the pastor, there is one essential message. Here it is. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And that's me and that's you. There's lots of good messages, lots of meaningful messages, lots of helpful messages, but there's only one essential message, and it's this. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That's the gospel. The one essential message that every pastor must absolutely love, that Brandon Marshall, left to himself, was starting to make a pretty big mess of his life. But Jesus turned it around. That's the gospel. That on my own, I am a colossal wreck of a person but Jesus was able to rebuild me, that no one is outside the reach of God's grace, that Jesus makes peace possible for anybody, no matter how much you think you've jacked up your life or how many mistakes you've made or how far gone you think you might be, there is a God who loves you, is on your side, he gave his son to die for you, and that by putting your faith in him and him alone, consciously, personally, not by inheriting Christianity, by putting your faith in him and him alone, your past may be forgiven, your present actually makes sense, and your future is marked by profound hope. This is the gospel, and it's the driving force of Paul's ministry, Christ alone. That's what motivates him to his core. Now, with that out, he backs up a little bit. Principle number two. Paul says he was clear in his motives. Clear in his motives. Take a look in verse three. He says, for our appeal... This like begging, this convincing, this like, please know the Lord. Where's this come from, Paul? He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor were the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, here's the story. In first century Thessalonica, there's actually a group of people called professional orators. Professional orators. These were professional speakers. Just like in our culture today, we have like chefs and teachers and cops and all the business owners and stuff like that. There's a class of society called professional orators whose job it was to stand on a public stage and say things well. Doesn't matter what you're saying, just say it well. It could be poetry, it could be narrative, it could be philosophy. Just say what you want to say and say it well. And Paul wants to remind this church that his motivation was somehow different. He lists off these seven things that were not motivations for him. You can see them right there in the text. And he lists them off to say, look, I didn't come for fame, I didn't come for money, I didn't come for prestige or influence. Guys, I just wanted you to know the Lord. That's his driving focus. One of my pastoral heroes, a guy named Eugene Peterson, 
who's an author and a writer and a pastor, he got this. There's this wonderful story when, um, in the last years of his life, when he was more renowned as a writer and his name was kind of getting out there, um, he was invited to speak at a stadium in Brazil in front of 40,000 people. This is every pastor's dream, right? Like, oh my gosh, give me a microphone in a stadium. I've made it. And Eugene was like hemming and hawing. He's like, I just don't know if I should do this. I just don't know if, this is, if I should go. And his son, Eric, who was also a pastor, said, Dad, this would be amazing. Like, think about like, the movement that could come out of this. Think about like, how many books could go out of there. Think about what you could do. And Eugene asked, kind of like pressed him back. And he says, you know, son, I'm just worried that I'm going to lose my soul. I hear stories like that, and I read Paul's words like this, and I go, yes, here's what I want us to see. If the way of Jesus is a life of self-emptying, self-denial, service, and selflessness, his church can never be about the things that will bring credit to our name. So Paul talks about how he resists the allure of success so he can serve the Savior. I want to feel the potter's hands forming me to be like Jesus. That's the cry of the pastor. Leads right to principle number three. Principle number three is he was gentle in his leadership. He was gentle in his leadership. So having explained what he didn't do, how he didn't enter, the approach he didn't take, Paul now shifts to the positives. He says, I wasn't this. When I came to you, I was, and look in verse 7. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. And that's a startling image, isn't it? For the Apostle Paul. We pastored you like a good mom would care for her kids. Feels a bit surprising. Like that's not what we would expect, but there it is. It's a beautiful image because whether by absence or by experience, most of us have a gut level intuition for what this feels like. Selfless and nurturing, caring, attentive, thoughtful, patient, kind, giving, Interestingly, this image of motherhood is not foreign for Paul. He told the Galatians in a rare moment of tenderness to that church, he says, I'm like a woman in childbirth waiting for the gospel to be born in you. What a powerful image. He's like, I am in agony in this thing that I want to have happen for you so badly. I want you to get the gospel that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. What a powerful image that is, isn't it? And here, where he says, we were like a nurturing mother caring for her own children, it's made all the more powerful by what preceded it. All seven of those things he said he wasn't, right? Like, you can't imagine a good mom who wants to deceive her children. You can't imagine a mom who wants to profit from her kids or who's greedy for things before giving them to her kids or who wants to build herself up at the expense of her kids. And so instead, we get Paul as a pastor saying, I'm gentle and nurturing, I'm taking care so beautiful. Then he pushes it forward to talk about what that means. In verse 8, he says this, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we're going to come back to that in a second, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you've become so dear to us. This is principle number four. Paul said he's generous in his relationships. 
I love that phrase, affectionately desirous. There's another one you can slip into conversation today while you're having like chicken wings out on the counter. Be like, I am affectionately desirous for buffalo chicken wings. People be like, trying too hard on that one. Affectionately desirous, what does that mean? It means to long for, to crave, to have this appetite for, this constant longing and relationship that won't let up. Um, somebody told me once that parenting, here, file this one away for, for those of you guys. Parenting, someone defined it like this once. That parenting is learning to live with your heart outside your chest. And I'm like, yeah. First day of school this year when Joseph sat in a little Corolla with Karsten in the passenger seat and Hannah in the back seat, and they're all go tootling down the road. Mandy and I were in the driveway going, <sighs> affectionately desirous. It's this like beautiful, sad, wonderful, happy, but like, oh God, just get me through this kind of thing. That emotion is what Paul's talking about here. And that led to something. He said this, this is so cool. He says, because of that, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you become so dear to us. This is Paul going, gosh, you remember those like text conversations at like two in the morning? All those times we sat at Starbucks? I know those weren't around then. I'm just giving you an illustration. Remember how we just got in life together? That. That's what I want you to remember, he says. When your faith wavers, remember how the gospel was fighting to be born in you. We weren't content to just share what we know. We wanted you to see who we are. I don't want to talk at you for 40 minutes on Sunday morning. I want to hear from you from Monday through Saturday because that's what life is. It wasn't enough just to hear about Jesus from us. I wanted you to see Jesus alive in us. Gosh, what a great vision for would-be pastors. I'd love to sit down with like seniors in Bible college and go, look, it's important that you can preach. Yes, that's good, but there's more. It's important that you can lead and cast vision and balance a budget. Yeah, that's important, but there's more. Are you capable of this? Are you capable of this kind of relational generosity? That's rare because it's risky, isn't it? Speaking personally, like this is a really hard one for me. Um, just like, here's why. We go through life, and life does stuff to us, right? I think here's something that I'm learning. This isn't unique to pastoral ministry. I think this is true of everybody in this room. You enter life, and you've got a thin skin and a soft heart, don't you? Like, you're, you're really vulnerable, but you're also OK being moved by stuff. Thin skin, soft heart. As you move through life, life dings you up a little bit, and you get what? You get thick skin and a hard heart. You get cynical, right? You get suspicious. You know what's rare in ministry and just in life? Is to have a thick skin and still preserve a soft heart. To say, you know, not everything's going to offend me. Not everything's going to blow me over. Not everything is a complete loss of identity. And I'm still moved by the things of the Spirit. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Principle number five. Selfless in his work. Take a look in verse 9. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Two words ought to jump off the page labor and toil. This means a crowded mind and a sweaty brow, deep fatigue, calloused hands and a bowed back. This is Paul at his bivocational best. Paul worked two jobs when he was in Thessalonica. 
two of them. And taken weirdly here, this could be kind of a weird flex, right? Taken, taken wrongly, this could be Paul going, you know I worked really hard while I was with you, right? Just want to make sure you know. Why is he bringing this up? Pointing to his resume is not his point. Here's what Paul wants us to see. I would do anything if I got to share the gospel with you. We talked about this a little bit last week. But Paul, before he was Paul, back when he was like a teenager, he was a young theology student. And theology students in the first century were required to learn a trade. And so Paul chose tent making, leather working. That's what he did. That was his like side hustle, his plan B, his fall back plan. Tent making, leather working was like a rough cut, blue collar job. And so if Paul was around today, he'd be like framing houses or hanging drywall. This is what Paul would do. Why did Paul do this? Anything, whatever it takes, if I could get you to actually have a relationship with the Lord. This is Paul's driving force. Missionary service in Paul's day included the hope of receiving financial support. But in Thessalonica, Paul chose not to leverage that hope. Instead, he worked to support his ministry there, and that had two results. One is it lifted the financial burdens of a church that was a poorer church. But then secondly, it cleared any allegations of him being there for false motives. Principle number six, he's blameless in his behavior. Take a look in verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Those three words, holy and righteous and blameless. Here's what they mean. Holiness is this deep inward piety that says, I just want to know the Lord. Holiness gets a bad rap in our world today, right? Holier than, right? That's an insult. Oh, gosh, dude, that guy's so holier than thou, or she's acting in such a holier than thou. Who made you so holy? I think we forget that holiness is actually something that God's word calls us to. It means consecration to the Lord, where my life is different than it was before Jesus. Righteousness, then, if holiness is this inward contrition, righteousness is the outwardness, the behavior that results from this. It's not just performative. It's real genuine because it's coming from a heart that wants to please the Lord. And then the last one is blameless, which is really just the sandwiching of the first two. Paul's just simply saying, look, when I was with you, my walk matched my talk. I was consistent. I want to stop here for a second, though, because I think, again, taken wrongly, this borders on, like, performative Phariseeism. I'm not sure if you notice this. In church life, it is so easy to fake it. You know what I mean? You know how you're supposed to act in church, and you know how you're supposed to act when you're around church people a little better than you normally do. Funny thing, though, isn't it great how everybody looks so holy from a distance? As soon as you get up close to somebody and you really start doing life, you go, oh my goodness, you are a mess. And so am I. <gasps> we both need Jesus because no one's arrived yet. Isn't that a profoundly freeing thing? It should be. That's the gift of the church. Imperfect people pointing to a perfect Savior. 
That's what we are about. In pastoral ministry, in church life, and in leadership, there is profound power in proximity. Proximity is the real, honest, sincere, intentional closeness with other people. There is power in proximity because proximity kills performance. If I keep you all out there, I can look pretty good. And Paul's saying, don't let church be that for you. Please, don't let this be a holiness contest. No, 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 no. So here's the question for pastors or for anybody who wants actual community in their life. Are we courageous enough to let people close enough to know us enough? Are we courageous enough to let people close enough to know us enough? Paul's painting a picture of church that is really powerful because it kills my ability to fake it. Principle number seven, but take a look in verse 11. Here's what he says. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Principle number seven is he's intentional in his guidance. Did you hear how Paul shifted here? He used to be like a mother, right? Nurturing and caring. And now he's a what? He's a father. He says, all right, I had another element to my leadership in your life, exhorting, encouraging, charging. This is Paul going, I'm begging you. I want to call you. I want to put this out in front of you and encourage you. When following Jesus gets hard, you can do it. Doesn't he sound like a great football coach here? I absolutely love it. This is Paul digging in and going, look, you can do this. Words of every good father, you can do this. What's he coaching toward? What's he hoping for? And the answer is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Little insight just to my pastor's heart, and I think this is most pastors. Most pastors fear the same thing. Not all, but many. Most pastors fear that the work begun in their presence will stop in their absence. That the car that's like going down the road and it's cruising will just like run out of gas, sputter, and then like die on the side of the road. Like put plainly, that when time or circumstance, or in Paul's case, spiritual attack, moves them on to another place in another time, that that flame of gospel hope that burned in the hearts of the people they love will like flicker and then out like a wisp of smoke. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. I want you to focus on the things that matter. I want you to cultivate a real abiding relationship with the Lord that's not fake because I'm shooting for things that outlive me. What a great vision. Last thing, last principle, and then we'll talk about what to do with this. Verse 13, he says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What gives Paul the right to beg and cajole and coach in the way that he does? God's word. Here's what this means. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but every church and every person in every church drifts to one of two extremes. I see this in myself, and I know you've got it in you too. We either do one of two things. We either drift toward the extreme of legalism, which says this, like, dude, you better start acting right. And if you don't start acting right, we're going to shame you, or we're going to teach you how to hide it. Because behavior is what's important. 
Fix the outside and then the inside will follow. Don't raise your hand. Some of you grew up in a church like that. That's legalism. It doesn't work because God didn't die so that you could behave. He died so that you could be new. There's the other side is liberalism. That's another extreme that just says like, well, I mean, just kind of go with what's in your heart. I mean, you'll figure it out. If it seems right to you, it must be right. Just kind of like pray about it. And if it seems kind of the right way to go, it's probably right. Here's the point. Neither extreme is helpful at all. Neither extreme is profitable. Neither extreme is good. And so how in the world do we find a centering point? Again, it isn't my opinion. It isn't your opinion. What is the centering point of truth for God's people? God's word. And that's it. It's why we do preach for like 40 minutes or 42, as the case may be, on Sunday mornings. It's because this is the only source of truth. If this calls it a sin, my opinion doesn't matter. If this calls it good, my opinion doesn't matter. I submit myself to what God says here, and he promises that that is where you get an actually successful, good, peaceful life. So he's biblical in his appeal. Now, that's what this text says. What does this text mean? What are we supposed to do with this? Again, I want to throw this up here so that you have a clear picture of what a pastor is about, what a church can be about, and what leadership can be about. Let me just react personally. When you see all eight of those things up there, I read that list and I go, oh gosh. There's some of those I'm like, okay, maybe. I'm feeling okay. There's others I go, gosh, I got work to do. I get to the end of that list and I was like, holy smokes, where do you find this unicorn pastor? Like, who is this guy? Where do you find another Christian that looks this way? This is impossible. This kind of sends me to my knees a little bit. I want to direct us to the end of Paul's letter. Some of us come from a church tradition where the pastor or the priest or the minister says something called a benediction. Benediction is, is, is a Latin mashup of two words, benedictus, which means good words or good sayings. And it's meant to be like, hey, if you're feeling overwhelmed, hey, there's hope, so sit tight. And now Paul's going to show us where the hope is. Get this. Very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, he says this. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, means make you holy, make you more like Christ. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Anybody feel unfaithful? Don't raise your hands. I'll do it for you. Anybody feel overwhelmed? Don't raise your hands. I'll do it for you. Good. It's all right. You try to do it on your own, there'd be nothing left for Jesus to accomplish. So what do we do with all this? Um, I sat in a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a young man who's um, here at North Canton Chapel. He's in his mid-20s. He's a great young man. He's really profoundly insightful. And um, he said this to me. And at first it kind of like made me go, eh. and then I'm like, oh, that's good. Here's what he said. He says, you know, Brandon, as long as there are humans leading the church, there will be sinners leading the church. And I'm like, mm, where are you going with that one, dude? And then what he said was really powerful. He says, we need to remember that this is Christ's church. And I go, that's it. That right there. Now, why do I bring that up? I want to push this out into the open for just like 30 more seconds. I'm willing to bet that many people in this room have something in common. 
And it is made more present when you see that description of a pastoral life or that description of a church life or that description of a leader. Here's the thing that many of us may have in common. Church hurt. Brokenness around the areas of pastors, churches, and leaders. And I'm not trying to like fabricate some narrative or, you know, force some mythology, but you stay in church long enough and that vision of like bedrock leadership kind of becomes broken glass. Church hurt is a real thing. Pastors disappoint, churches can wound, and leaders will let us down. Bet on it. And so what I believe the Lord wants for some of us today is to be open to begin the process of healing and restoration in those areas. Whether North Can Chapel's been your home church for decades or you've come from a church where you go, gosh, ah, there's just pain. And so here's what I want to do. I thought about like how to wrap this thing up today. And I'm going to do the same thing we kind of did last week. I'm not going to give you like 10, 10 points of next steps you got to do. Here's five things you got to take out of here today. I'm not going to be that directive today, not that prescriptive. Um, I don't feel like it because I think it's actually missing the larger point. I think what the Spirit wants us to do is to take a few moments just to hear from him in the quietness of our own hearts. And so, just a few moments, we're going to have like the lights go down and the music's going to come up and we're just going to have a time of quiet before the band comes out just to let the Spirit speak to you. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in residence in your heart and he wants to speak to you. And so if you're comfortable with this, I want to encourage you. You can take an open hand posture like this while we're sitting. You don't have to stand and do it or anything like that. But just to sit and pray. An open hand posture does, does a couple of things. First, it can say, God, I'm releasing something to you. I'm releasing a pain that I've held on to for a little while. And God, I'm giving it back to you because it's yours and I don't want it anymore. And you can be thinking about a pain of someone who hurts you in a church, a church that hurts you in a way that maybe you've never thought about before? With your hands open, say, God, I'm releasing this to you. This isn't solving everything. This doesn't fix everything, but maybe this is the start of that process. Open hands can also mean a posture of receiving. Maybe the Lord wants to give you something. Maybe he wants to give you a spirit of forgiveness and a spirit of like, all right, I've got to have a conversation. I've got to make a phone call. I've got to shoot a text to somebody today. Now, here's the thing. This is only done at the direction of the Spirit. This isn't guilt. But I just know a lot of us share that in common. And I think that sometimes the physical can be a catalyst for the spiritual. <laughs> and so just sitting with open hands for a few moments, just talk to the Lord. He is so faithful. He is so good. I love that his word calls him a good shepherd. That, yes, there are leaders who will miss expectations. There are leaders who will flop and fail and but Jesus Christ never does he never ever ever lets us down ever and so let's just take a few moments now to sit in prayer in the silence and then I'll come back up and close this out
with me. Lord, you are a good shepherd. You lead us through dark valleys and you lead us into green pastures and still waters. Lord, you have never had your eye off of each one of us. You know us before we were born. You know the number of hairs on our head. You know every day of our lives before there is one of them. And so God, we just say thank you, thank you, thank you so much that you are such a good, generous, kind God. Father, help us in these days. Give us courage and give us compassion. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.